At Fidelity, value is automatic, starting with the rate you can get on your cash when you open a new retail brokerage account. Learn more at fidelity.com slash trading. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to save you some money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put it in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. I know the glass half full, glass half empty motif has become a cliche. But right now, the facts are being bent by the prism you use to judge this market. And the perception of most investors of the big institutional kind at this moment is actually quite negative. Even on a day where the averages managed to rebound, Dow gaining 209 points, S&P climbing 1.06%, and the Nasdaq advancing 1.72%. So I want to spend some time tonight explaining why events that would normally be viewed as positives don't come off that way, because I know that's causing a lot of confusion out there. First, let me give you the prevailing negative zeitgeist that bends the prism's light into a dark, foreboding specter. A zeitgeist that wasn't dispelled by today's actions, at least I believe. The specter that's haunting this market can be summed up in two words. Late cycle. As in, we're in the last part of an economic expansion, the latest part of the cycle. So you might as well just forget about the possibility of next year's earnings. They'll be lower. Disappointing. Who determines these things? Some of it's by rote. When the Fed first starts tightening, the economy can handle it, especially this time, because rates were so low to begin with, eight quarter point hikes ago. But as rates go higher and higher and higher, it becomes obvious that the economy has to sputter. It's been a long time since the economy sputtered, but it's clearly doing so. And even Fed Chair Jay Powell admitted last night that he's concerned that business might be slowing. As recently as six weeks ago, he was seeing a different tune, one of a totally robust environment. Adding fuel to the fire, Europe and Asia are slowing too. The former because maybe Brexit, uh, not to mention instability in Italian government, and of course, weaker demand from their biggest trading partner, China. The fallout from China is obvious. The economic reports from the PRC, while strong by the standards of any other country, are much weaker than the Chinese authorities would like. Why? Because of the tariffs, that's why. So many of our companies are working diligently to move manufacturing out of China, or to mitigate, as they call it in their conference calls. And and that panic has now become palpable. It's not all that hard to judge. There's a thing called the Baltic Freight Index, which shows worldwide shipping data that's heavily tied to Chinese trade, and it's been plummeting like a stone. Now, periodically, we hear that one of these two major uh, chords that are driving the bearish tune might actually go away. Um, today we were doing our usual midday swoon, for instance, when we got word from press reports that there might be a truce with China over the implementation of the automatic 25% tariff in January. Big jump from 10% right now. That's huge. It would lend some credence to the belief that the damage is reversible, but who knows if it's even true. I'm of the opinion that the trade issue is just the tip of a much larger iceberg between these two countries, which is that this administration has a policy of containment toward China, and the White House is happy to stop trading with them unless they could their geopolitical ambitions, or at least that was Vice President Pence's plan outlined at the Hudson Institute a little more than a month ago. If his view reflects Trump's thinking, then any kind of truce on tariffs might be a sucker's bet. 
prism can also be bent toward the light by any talk that Jay Powell may be willing to put through one more rate hike in December and then stop, or at least wait until it's prudent for putting through another three. So, uh, so far, that too, though, has been a sucker's bet. If you believe it, you've lost a lot of money. However, a potential change in Powell's hard line and anti-empirical position certainly seems possible if you listen to Powell last night. We'll learn that later in the show. For now, let's just say I know from harsh personal experience that the Fed is capable of changing on a dime. But let's presume that both rays of hope fail to pan out for whatever reason. Let's presume that neither President Trump nor Jay Powell worries about the end of the cycle because Trump cares more about starving China to prevent it from achieving great power status, and Powell cares more about taming inflation than maintaining a strong economy. Well, how does that prism tint our worldview? Well, let's start with this earnings issue because that's really what determines a lot of prices. Let's talk about Walmart, okay? Now, I I didn't look at the action in the stock of Walmart when Walmart reported, reported very early in the morning. I only looked at the numbers, which were actually excellent. Excellent. Every line. It was staggering to behold what they're doing in Bentonville, honestly. Initially, the stock was up, just like the stock of Home Depot or the stock of Basie's before them when they reported. But I knew that was a sucker's play, too. And sure enough, the stock got hit. Why? Because of the late cycle prism. I heard instantly not that anything was wrong with Walmart, just the opposite. Everything was good. So good that it can't ever be better because we're at the end of the cycle. Late cycle. It's become almost circular reasoning. The stock can't go higher because it's the end of the cycle. And it's the end of the cycle because the stock's down. And that's exactly what happened. I've read over the Macy's conference call a couple times. There was nothing wrong with it. Uh, Today, JCPenney reported some miserable numbers, so the end of cycle maniacs have decided Penny's finished and its competitors will be banged down by all its excess merchandise. Meanwhile, the apparel makers Ralph Lauren and VF Corp PVH were obliterated. Tonight, Nordstrom, apparel company, right? Williams-Sonoma, they sell a lot of stuff, including, well, let's just say they sell a lot of house goods. Well, they reported widely panned end-of-cycle numbers. Tomorrow could be another tough retail day. We see this all the time in housing. Here's a group that's been on the business end of the Fed's howitzers for some time. The home builders themselves have been blasted to smithereens, or at least we thought so. In a bear market, it's never enough. Even though you have to have your head buried in the sand like an ostrich to not know that housing is slowed in this country, these stocks got way, just laid to waste today. Again, when the CEO of KB Homes yesterday said there's been a pause in housing in the last five or six weeks, resulting in a year-over-year decline in orders. That crushed the whole group. KB Homes plunged 15%. Total lost 6%. Lennar dropped 5%. That's the end of cycle talking again. It was so brutal that it also pulled down a Home, a home Depot which in bad times is regarded not as a retailer, but as a company whose fortunes rise or fall with home sales. That makes Home Depot a housing play. So therefore, its good quarter just reported was the last good quarter, at least according to the late cycle prism. And right now, that's the only prism that the market cares about. So the stock of Home Depot goes still lower. It doesn't matter what a company says anymore, frankly. I mean, Cisco reported uh, literally its best quarter since the 90s, and its stock went from being up a dollar to being flat after the press release came out. Now, as it happens, Cisco's CEO, Chuck Robbins, came on the show. He explained the positives, which then chased off the bears. But I regard that stock as an outlier now. This end-of-cycle logic raises its head everywhere. Apple stock has been pummeled seemingly just for gads a point because it's the end of the telco cycle, coinciding with the coming recession that will make it too expensive to buy $1,000 phones. That's why so many investors believe Apple's no longer disclosing its unit sales. I think Apple's got so much service revenue going for it that there's not nearly as much cyclicality involved here. But obviously, other than on days like today where you get a little snapback rally, uh, the stock ignited 
very quickly, the bearish narrative tends to dominate. Oh, and then tonight, well, let's, uh, let's put it out there. NVIDIA is severely disappointed. The zeitgeist will be part execution and part, you guessed it, late cycle analysis. Bottom line, look, if the Fed changes course and says no more rate hikes until next year, unless the data gets more positive, or if President Trump gets a trade deal with China or even does this kind of truce, then the end of cycle proponents may have to change their tune and the market can rocket higher. Otherwise, though, rallies like today are going to be used to reposition portfolios because the bears have the late cycle microphone and they just will not let it go. Sandy in Kansas City. Hello, Jim. A big booyah from Topeka, Kansas. Nice to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for taking my call. I've been holding on to CGC for quite a while now. With the midterms over, wanted to get your take on whether I should keep holding it or fold it. Okay, well, my feeling was CGC. I said, that's the only one you can really own and you got to sell the rest. CGC, why? Because it's got that big position with Constellation. If you believe over the long term, that cannabis is going to be good. I think Constellation's good, and I think Canopy's good. It's got the best balance sheet. That matters a great deal to me. Tom in Texas. Tom. Yeah, hi, Jim. Long-time watcher, first-time caller. My company is International Paper, ticker IP. I'm wondering why the stock is busted so bad. Is this a bad company? Uh, no, no, it's an excellent company. Excellent. Here's the problem. A lot of, Mr. Sutton's doing a great job. A lot of companies expanded, added capacity. There's too much supply, and that's what's pressuring it. I think International Paper, you're buying back stock, doing a great job. Uh, my Chapel Trust owns West Rocket. has been severely disappointing, but I think the company itself is doing a good job. It's just that there's too much supply, and there's not much you can do, even with good demand. Let's go to David in Alabama. David. Kramer, what's happening? Not much. How about you? Hey, blood pressure's up a little bit, but that's not what I called. <laughs> Strom Ruger, RGR. I'm up about 18% for the year. The revenue is staying about the same as below the 200-day moving average. I don't know if it's going to go up or down or stay straight. With Congress being locked up like it is, I don't see any significant legislation being put out to change firearm sales. What's your thought on that? Well, I agree, I agree with you on that. I don't think anything will happen. I do know that the best moments to buy uh, the gun stock, so to speak, are when people fear uh, that there will be legislation. They buy a lot of guns and stocks go higher. Uh, Sturm Ruger is a fine company. Uh, I have, um, you know, my family has guns. It's not, you know, I'm not pro, I'm not NRA, I'm not non-NRA. I think it's a good company. It's not my cup of tea, but understand that it's a good company. All right. It, it's the prism that determines how stocks trade right now. And unfortunately, the bears still have the microphone. Oh, man, money tonight. Jay Powell may have reversed on his position. So what does that mean for the home gamer? I'm giving my thoughts. Then news of GE party and Spaker used stake initially sent the stock soaring before it came back down. What happened here? Uh, what, what's going on with GE? I'm going to help you. And I've got the exclusive of one of the few profitable companies in the cannabis industry, MR Dean, as it begins trading in Canada. Stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. At Fidelity, we work to get you a better price for every trade. 
See how much we saved investors last year at fidelity.com slash price improvement. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC. Thank you, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan, for all you have done to avert the coming end-of-cycle slowdown that the stock market so often signals these days. A course so loud that it's now including the credit markets, too. All day we heard a back-and-forth debate about whether in last night's conversation, that 6 p.m. thing with Kaplan, Fed Chief, uh, Chief Jerome Powell, that whether has Powell grown more dovish versus his previously hawkish stand on the economy. Talk about a false dichotomy involving irrelevant birds of a feather. What matters is that rather than a general journalism practitioner like Judy Woodruff asking Jerome Powell in a long-winded and totally unscripted talk about the economy, that's the fabled October 3rd interview that started the slow-motion train wreck of a bear market, this time we had a thoughtful discussion between two rigorous people about the hazards of raising the federal funds rate too rapidly. Mind you, if you parse every word of what Jerome Powell said last night at the Dallas Confab, you too will miss the big picture, which is the context of the questioning. Kaplan did not ask about runaway inflation. He did not ask about how the economy, how to, how to ensure that the economy doesn't overheat. He did not ask about rising wages. His questions were almost all designed to show that Jay Powell is growing very concerned about the worldwide slowdown that's coming here. And now he's cognizant that the rate hikes and the bond roll-off are causing a tightening that could be more powerful than he previously thought. Kaplan's questions allowed Powell to walk back his sadly intemperate comments from October, comments that seemed to be almost blithely oblivious to some of the more worrisome data out there. So many CEOs have told me about how quickly things have cooled. So many of them are baffled that we could find ourselves in this late-cycle dilemma that wasn't supposed to occur so soon. They come on to tell me that, to say something. Please warn like we got yesterday from uh, KB Homes, where the CEO said home sales just slowed dramatically. Now, let me go back 11 years for one moment. 11 years ago, I began to hear the same kind of talk about how the Fed seemed to be out of such, out of sync with what was happening this time with Wall Street. My sources were so darn good back then. It was part of, I, I was part of the diaspora of Goldman Sachs alums who had sources pretty much everywhere. And I'd grown up with people who were now running the very joints we'd started at 20 years before. They came to me one after another to say something to warn. I did. Unfortunately, it meant nothing. I was laughed at for being a lunatic. It was a real Cassandra moment. It was mortifying, but I was right. I did my best, and at that time, I made a resolution. If I thought we would ever get back into one of these situations again, I promised myself I'd be vocal about what could go wrong, even if I knew it wouldn't be as serious as the Great Recession. After all, there are degrees of slowdowns that nonetheless can cause an awful lot of havoc and cost a lot of jobs. And that's what we're on the verge of here. That's what the markets are saying. That's what the CEOs are worried about offline. After last night, I know Jay Powell gets it too. He doesn't want to be part of the late cycle madness we keep hearing about. He wants people to know that he now understands that there's another side, the slowing side, the side with cracks, the side that Robert Kaplan was telling him about with the questions he asked. Is it too late? Yes, if we get four more hikes, absolutely. No, if we only get one and we wait. Powell knows now that normalizing interest rates isn't the goal. No one knows what normal is these days anyway. 
Right. He recognizes that his goal is not to hasten the so-called end-of-cycle talk that pretty much everyone I hear from accepts as the gospel, as the outcome of his rate hikes and the president's autopilot tariff increases. So thank you, Robert Kaplan, for, dro- for really for giving Powell the opportunity to walk us back from the precipice without ever directly contradicting himself or looking foolish. We know Powell's now concerned that we actually could be at the end of the economic expansion. That's a soft reversal of his earlier position from just one month ago, when he was so wedded to the explosive growth conceit that he talked about overshooting with rate hikes to stamp out inflation. The guy's clearly paying attention to the data now. You know what? That's all you can ask for. And by the way, there's a big reason why we were able to rally today. Stick with me. get serious. Not that long ago, General Electric was the largest company in the world. Then it became a pitiful, helpless giant, to borrow a phrase from the late, not-so-great Richard Nixon. Now the stock supports a pitiful $71 billion valuation with an $8 in change stock. It's down 75% from its highs a little over two years ago. But rather than going over GE's relentless decline yet again, tonight I want to focus on one particular aspect of this story, because the funny thing happened on the way to the $8 forum. A pair of analysts took control of the company's narrative to the point where their commentary now carries a lot more weight than management's, even as GE just brought in the highly qualified new CEO, Larry Culp. Doesn't matter. Culp is not the guy investors are looking to here for guidance to the firm's future. See, as this stock has steadily stumbled lower for the past couple of years, two very bearish analysts have emerged as GE's main detractors. I'm talking about Stephen Tusa at J.P. Morgan and John Inch, who was originally at Deutsche Bank, but now works with the boutique research firm Gordon Haskett. These two people have been negative on GE for ages now, and they have been relentlessly and painfully right. Their price targets have been consistently lower than the stock price or the price targets of the rest of the analyst community. But every time GE approaches those levels, what do they do? Tucson Inch find a new reason to lower their targets yet again. Some would say they're like Lucy pulling the ball away from Charlie Brown. But the point here is that Tucson Inch have nailed GE every step of the way to the point where I don't think this stock will be able to rebound until these two bears sign off on its turnaround plans, and they sure haven't done so yet. So how the heck did we get to a place where a pair of bearish analysts seem to hold the fate of one of the most important companies in the world, General Electric, or at least General Electric stock, in their hands? Okay, it all started in May of 2016. When Stephen Tusa resumed coverage of on General Electric with an underweight rating and a $27 price target. At the time, the stock was trading just north of 30. In a massive 235-page note, Tusa called the earnings and cash flow forecast into question. Now, I want to emphasize just how bold, gutsy, and lonely this call was. When Tusa resumed coverage on GE with an underweight at J.P. Morgan, no less, he was the only analyst with the equivalent of a sell rating on this stock. And no one would join him in the sell camp for about a year. The more jaundiced of you out there, please keep in mind something that I think is important. GE always has a ton of investment banking to do, right? And it was obvious that Tusa was out to help you, his research clients, even if it was at the expense of the investment banking side at J.P. Morgan. It's equally obvious that CEO Jamie Dimon wasn't going to rein this guy in. You know what I say? 
Good for Tusa. Good for J.P. Morgan. The integrity here has been heroic the whole way. Like Captain Ahab going after Moby Dick, Tusa never wavered. By October 2016, he's talking about the risk of a possible dividend cut for the sacred G dividend cut if the free cash flow gets even worse. Then General Electric announces its plan to merge the oil and gas business with Baker Hughes. Big oil service play. Tusa, unmoved. He was also growing weary of the core industrial segment, something I asked Jeff Immelt when he was on this set with me on February of 2017. Take a listen to this. J.P. Morgan, Stephen Tusa, who you know has a sell on your stock, he's saying that the industrial segment's profits ended $1.5 billion lower than initial guidance. This was a miss to an already dramatically lowered board. Jeff, I mean, you know, this isn't you. Come on, you you bang out the numbers. Jim, last year, overall segment earnings with both verticals and industrial, roughly flat with 2015. We're forecasting 3 to 5% organic growth, 100 basis points improvement, good backlog, good momentum. I think a strong 2017. I like the way we're positioned in 2017. Like where he was positioned. In March of last year, the stock was still hanging tough at $30. That's when Tusa began his so-called cash series, where he put GE's free cash flow outlook, stuff I just referenced in that old clip, under a microscope. He argued that the bulls were being wildly optimistic, including, of course, CEO Immelt, about the company's cash situation and earnings prospects for 2017, especially since GE seemed to be using divestitures to fund its dividend payments, which is never a good position to be in. Finally, after GE reported another not-so-hot quarter, Tusa got some company in May of 2017 when John Inch, then of Deutsche Bank, downgraded the stock to a sell and cut his price target to 24. He made many of the same arguments, like overvaluation, ugly cash flow situation, but he also rolled out a new one. Even if GE got rid of its then-CEO, Jeff Immelt, Inch claimed it would be negative because Immelt's successor would have to immediately come clean and lower expectations. A month later, we learned that John Flannery would be taking over from ML effective August 1. And while the stock initially rallied, Inch's view would be vindicated pretty quickly. Sure enough, when GE reported its next quarter, they lowered the boom on you, talking about serious weakness in their power business, something Tusa had been harping about for ages. John Inch, remember formerly of Deutsche Bank, was also getting increasingly negative, slashing his earnings forecast, raising serious doubts about the dividend, which is another thing that I asked Immelt about point blank during that faded February 2017 interview. You're Do- going through the bears. Okay, right? but with Deutsche Bank, the I mean, there's a lot of firms yeah. now. I'm dealing with Credit Trio. Yeah. I got JP Morgan at Deutsche Bank. Yeah. Uh, credit, uh, Deutsche Bank says uh, or we should be concerned that maybe perhaps that uh, you can't do bigger dividend increases, which you know I love. We talk about it on the show all the time. We gave $30 billion back to investors well, last they're year. They're saying 30, that the free 30, cash flow 30, 30 of. $30 billion back last year. Okay. okay. So you're, uh, you're uh, disagreeing, another, point blank. Uh, uh, forecast to be $20 billion plus this year. So what do you and say to an analyst who says the cash situation could become serious? Is that, that analyst just wrong? Is he wrong, Jeff? Just wrong. He's just yeah. wrong. Jim, $30 billion in buyback and dividends in 2016. Okay. Another $20 billion in buyback and dividends in 2017. That's pretty strong. Of course, they wish they had every penny of that back. Because in reality... When you include upcoming charges, they were bleeding money from the eyeballs. And this is when things really started to snowball for GE. The company reported some downright horrible results. Then in November of last year, Flannery held an analyst meeting where he did indeed cut the dividend and revealed some disturbing details about the core business, including the fact that GE's dividend had been larger than its industrial cash flow for years. Cut it in half. Turns out the bears were right all along. 
Now, as 2018 rolled around, these two bearish oracles started writing about GE much more regularly. And the company kept reinforcing their arguments by reporting more and more negative facts, like the $21.2 billion in charges for an obscure long-term care insurance product from 15 years ago that seemed to come out of nowhere. As Tucson Inch dug deeper into General Electric, they found even more problems with the seriously impaired power business, the underfunded pension liabilities, and more, which led to them continually lowering the price targets. In January, Inch even predicted that it would be removed from the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Now, John Flannery tried to turn things around. He announced a restructuring, including the merger of GE's transportation unit with Wabtec and a spinoff of the healthcare business. But we just kept finding out more new negatives, negatives that we really should have known about a long time before. For a while, GE stocks stayed stuck between 12 and 14, 12 and 14. And I think a big reason for this is that Tusa took his uh, price target to 11 in March, and then he left it there for months. Yep, that's how influential he'd become. When he finally cut his forecast to 10 bucks in September, the stock plunged more than 12% over the next four days. Finally, at the beginning of October, GE fired Flannery. I guess he was too much of an insider to fix the company's deep-seated problems. I mean, who knows? They don't tell you anything. And they brought in the great Larry Cope, formerly of Danner. Tusa wondered if there might be more serious issues at play, and he predicted another dividend cut. Then, about a month ago, John Inch, who'd left Deutsche Bank, resurfaced at Gordon Haskett. He published some pent-up negative thoughts on General Electric, saying it would take a very long time for the company to turn around, regardless of who's at the helm. Then on October 25th, Tusa warns that GE may be double-counting $12 to $18 billion worth of assets, which is a big deal when you're talking about a company with a troubled balance sheet. The next day, John Inch said the company could end up owing billions more for the horrific long-term care insurance policies. Then the company reported at the end of October... And it proved uh, Tucson Inch right. GE all but eliminated its dividend, shrinking it to a penny per share. They said they reorganized the power division, taking a $22 billion goodwill impairment charge for that business, including part of that they had just bought. Oh, and we learned that the SEC had expanded the scope of their investigation to the company. That's when the stock plunged to the single digits. But Tucson Inch, they just kept hammering it. Two weeks ago, Inch said he could potentially see the stock shrinking to five bucks, assuming that GE Capital doesn't ultimately become insolvent. Ouch. Now he's talking about escalating liquidity risk. Then last week, G- Tusa cut his price target to six. He really think- he thinks the real problem here is the fundamentals are deteriorating. But here's the bottom line. Steven Tusa and John Inch have done incredible, brave, and amazingly rigorous work on General Electric. They nailed the story every step of the way, even when the company itself seemed to be totally clueless, or perhaps something even worse about its own prospects, which is why you do need to take your cue from these two gentlemen that, uh, and wait until the real problems they say are solved before you get bullish. And they sure aren't there yet. Oh, and one last idea. You want to you put the past behind him? You want to clean up the past? How about a Culp Steve Tusa town hall to clear the air? Get some much needed truth and reconciliation. Jimmy in California. Jimmy. Hey, thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, my brother Rob's been watching you since Mad Money started on CNBC, and he's made me a fan too. Um, so thank you. Um, I recently bought shares of Synchrony, uh, SYF, and now Walmart, who's ending their contract with SYF, is alleging uh, risky lending practices. And that's been followed by um, class action lawsuits for investors, also alleging uh, risky lending practices. Um, as you may know, SYF claims that Walmart's just suing because right. they don't want to deal with the end of their contract. Right. I mean, SYF still has contracts with uh, Amazon and PayPal. So I'm right. trying to figure out, do I hold on to SYF? Well, I, I would prefer you not to. I mean, we've got, we've got Warren Buffett buying a gigantic stake, 35 million shares in J.P. Morgan, the best of the best. Uh, why not swap out of the second rate and go right to the best? There's no reason not to own the best of breed. All right. 
I don't want you to think about buying GE until some people change their minds. John Inch, Stephen Tusa. Congratulations, guys, for really being heroic and having such great integrity. Today, I'm going one-on-one with the top brass of M. Hardeen. That's the largest cannabis cultivator in North America to date. What's ahead for the company as it hits the tape in Canada? I'm finding out. And in a volatile market like this one, the best defense is a good offense. And that's why we play MI Diversified. So call me or tweet me. And don't miss tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. Stay with Craig. always trying to get a read on the cannabis business, especially now that it's fully legal in Canada. And Jeff Sessions, the ultimate drug warrior, is out at the Justice Department. These stocks aren't always worth investing in at the moment, as I think many of them are way too hot and some of them too small. But someday this is going to be a huge industry and it's absolutely worth following. Which brings me to M. Hardeen Group, a professional management company with partners uh, it partners with marijuana growers and retailers to help them set up shop and run their facilities efficiently. Now, we introduced you to this company a couple of months ago, uh, but there's been so many changes since then. MRD just came public in Canada via reverse takeover and now trades under the symbol MJAR in Canada. And that's not all. Today, MRD announced that it will be merging with Growforce. That's a Canadian cannabis producer that's long had a close relationship with this company. It's all very exciting, but it's also kind of actually a little confusing. So, uh, why don't you sort things out by checking in with Rishi Godam. He is the chairman and CEO of M. Hardeen and the CEO of Growforce. Get a better sense of what this all means. Mr. Godam, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. Great to be here. Okay, so can you just, for our viewers, talk about what these events do to, for your company, what it now looks like versus when you're on, and what the prospects are? Absolutely. So M. Hardeen is elevating the conversation. Today we are a multi-country operator with the announcement of acquiring Growforce. Growforce, as we talked about last time, outside the U.S. have focused on Canada and federally legal markets. M. Hardeen decided to take that business and create the largest operator in the global cannabis space. Combined, 49 facilities, cultivation, extraction, and retail, largest operator. Jim, we, we produce and sell more legal cannabis than Tilray and Canopy combined. We're very excited with this opportunity. Okay, well, I think a lot of our viewers will say, well, wait a second, those companies are valued in the multiple billion, $10 billion. Why is it that M. Hardeen does not have a similar valuation? And I'm not a, a softball. I'm just saying, what's the confusion for people? We just started trading today. We always priced our business as a business with EBITDA multiple, uh, not as a business that happens to be in the cannabis space. It's always been attractively valued for our institutions. About 35% of our company today is owned by long-only institutions, long-only money. So we, we got this, the, the most strategic, smartest capital uh, as we built our business over time. And we're, we just started trading today and we're off to the races. So we've always priced our business very rationally. Okay, so the, the two companies, uh, as one, what is the ratio between uh, growing and being the, say, the, the uh, pick, said the mortar, so, so to speak, of, of, uh, of helping other companies? So right now we have a hybrid approach. In some markets, we act as agent, like you mentioned. We're a managing company. We manage assets in long-term contracts. In certain key markets, we want to take ownership economics. So in Massachusetts, in Canada, in Nevada, in certain key markets, we want to take ownership, more flagship uh, opportunities. So right now we're about 75-25 between 
uh, 75 as agent, 25 as principal. Over time, as we expand our business, we intend to make capital injections in key markets and really get to a 50-50 between managing assets and owning assets. Well, that's terrific. Now, uh, tell me what it's like up in Canada right now. You know, we had the hoopla, and now we're just kind of everyday managing. I mean, are the states getting together? It seems like each place is a little bit different. It's so hard to navigate. Just give me the lay of the land. It's great to be an operator, frankly. We have produced and sold more legal cannabis, over 125,000 kilos. We know the market as an operator. Not, and, now, and now with capital, we're also a smart capital allocator. So when we're looking at markets like Canada, we've seen the capital markets really run ahead of the advancements operationally. We know what it takes to grow the cannabis, extract it, and sell it into the markets. Now it's about being an asset manager. Before, it was about being an asset owner, who owned what licenses and what markets. Now it's about monetizing those assets, and that's where the operational excellence of M. Hardin is really going to shine. Going into these assets, operating these assets, really creating real revenue, real EBITDA. Uh, so right now we see in Canada the first wave from a capital market standpoint is done. Now the second wave, which we thrive in, the second wave we can come in, optimize assets, perform better, faster, more efficient than our first mover competitors. That's what we see right now in Canada. That's what we see in other key markets in the U.S. Are there some analyst estimates that I can find out about when, about EBITDA positive, when, what are the, uh, the total adjustable market for your business, and what are the revenue, say, projections uh, out there? Because I don't have them. That's right. We just started trading today, Jim. We expect to have research analyst coverage very soon here. But just to give you a backdrop, we were pro- positive uh, EBITDA last year. Positive EBITDA this year, real revenue, real EBITDA, and we're going into new markets as the, the most strategic capital allocators, the most strategic operators. So we intend to grow uh, that EBITDA base into more and more cash flow, more and more EBITDA as we, as we expand into new markets. Well, I think research when I, will be coming. I'm sorry. When I hear that kind of thing, I think about, uh, I was with a very large liquor company the other day, and they said, you know what, we have to be in cannabis. I was with a major food company the other day, and they said, you know what, we have to be in cannabis. What do you hear about the big players saying, you know what, it's now legal, we have to be in it? Uh, they definitely should be in it. We talk to strategics all the time. We are educating and discussing very interesting opportunities right now. It's important for the alcohol, the tobacco, and other strategics, cosmetics, to come into this market and really partner with an operator. Um, it's very uh, uh, efficient to look at M. Hardin as an operator. We can help teach the strategics. We can help them expand with our, our vast footprint in a very scalable way. Uh, we think that this is the right time for additional strategics to come in. So and when you get a, a decision, a vote like we had just last week with a new state, do you suddenly like you know, bring people down to that state and say, well, Michigan, what, here's what we're looking at? I mean, like, because you mentioned Massachusetts, they really haven't gotten it going yet. Massachusetts will turn on soon. Michigan is another great state. We have a, a playbook of certain markets we want to be uh, capital allocators in and take flagship or principal positions, Michigan, Massachusetts being one of the uh, two examples of, of, of those states. Um, we, we have uh, been operating in, or consulting in over 13 states as our history, uh, over nine years being in the legal cannabis space. We know the markets really well. Uh, we have a very um, substantive playbook of where we want to be. So this is, this is all falling within our, our strategy as these states are opening up, medical and then medical and recreational. Um, so it's all working out very well for us. We have a very, a very nice tailwind here to move forward. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on and explaining all the very exciting developments at MR Dean Group. That's Rishi Godam. You've heard him before. Now you just heard EBITDA positive. I like that. Chairman and CEO of MR Dean. Now, just so you know, it's M-J-A-R-D-I-N. A lot of people ask me that. Their money's back into the break. It is time. It's time for the light. We're going to wrap our one of the seasons. And then the light rounds are. Are you ready, Ski? Time for the light round. Let's start with Mike in Michigan. Mike. Hello, Jim. Hey, Mike. Yes, I've been with Iconic for a while now, and I I know they're in a buyout deal with Apollo. Right. And I was wondering uh, if you think this is a good time to get rid of it. You know what? We're not arbitrageurs. Let's just take the profit and run. Or even, you know, frankly, let's just go. Because we don't know how that deal is going to work out. Let's go to Tyler, Pennsylvania. Tyler. Kramer, what's up, man? Big booyah from Philly. Good deal, man. Hey, what's up with you? What's up? Yo, Qualcomm, man. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Three down, uh, ten up. Because you got five, uh, 5G coming. But uh, the three down might be first. Uh, let's go to uh, Eric in New York. Eric. A big apple booyah, Dr. Eric. I know you're not a fan of Chinese stocks, but I was interested to hear equity in Chinese fintech has been getting cautious, especially. They lost that uh, financial, but they have a solid revenue and net income. They're trading at a Yeah, like they, they're already credit products. No, I mean, actually, I got to tell you, they, uh, these companies come publicly every day. The Chinese companies bring so many of their companies. I'm being hyperbolic, but uh, very few of them actually work. And this one, I don't want you to touch. Steve in Florida. Steve. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. And for the advice you always give. Thank as you. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Uh, my call is regarding a stock I own in my portfolio, FCAU. Yeah, that's the best of the automakers, but I don't really care for the automakers, so I'm going to say take some off the table. It's too hard a group. Let's go to Mike in North Carolina. Mike, Mike, Mike. Jim, booyah, Mike from Bigger Better Burlington, North Carolina. Oh, fantastic. What's up? My sons, David and I, uh, and Austin, uh, David in Arizona, Austin and Clemson University, watch your show religiously. Thank love you that. for what you do in educating us. I love that. PMO, Thermal Fisher. Oh, what a great company. $93 billion market cap company. Run incredibly well. That's my kind of company for this environment. Let's go to Glenn in Indiana. Glenn. Good. How, how are you? I am good. How about you? Thank you for taking my phone calls. I was just calling about game stock. I have no, uh, no, too risky. Stock. Too risky. Well, the only thing in that whole area that we like is take two interactive. The group is making a comeback. It's been brutal. Let's go to Mark in California. Mark. Hey, Kramer. Do you think Lena uh, Pharmaceuticals pipeline will finally get some respect? Well, I mean, look, I think the, this is one of those to each his own. I mean, you know, if you want to spec in that one, I'm not going to fight you. I don't fight against the specs in, in that area. Let's go to Kevin in New York. Kevin. How are you, Mr. Kramer? Hi. My, uh, my stock that I have is ticker ECA in Kana. In Kana, you know what? We, you know, we got to buy the highest quality oils now because the patch is so dicey. And Kana is not one of those. Let's go to Cameron. In Washington, Cameron. Big old Seattle Seahawks. Booyah for you, sir. Hey, go. Hey, good game tonight. Booyah. What's up? Weight Watchers. You know it's been beat up lately. All right, look, Mindy Gross been terrific, but they didn't make the quarter, so it's a show-me situation. I'm going to take a pass on it. Let's go to Nancy in Virginia. Nancy. Hi there, Jim. It's good to talk to you. Same. Um, 
Uh, I wanted to ask you, with the price of oil tanking worldwide, I'd like to know if you feel that the 6% dividend is safe, and are you still positive on, and would you be a buyer of British Petroleum? The answer is BP, absolutely. They just raised the dividend. The cash flow is amazing. They're doing a lot of things right. It's uh, absurdly bad, which is why the Chapel Trust, which you can follow along, is AxelOrgePlus.com Club, is buying it right here. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Now, you probably say we have enough pain in a bear market, David. There he goes again. He's on the floor. Oh my God, it's my Brioni jacket. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. Okie dokie, the bears are making it clear that, except for on a day like today, they are in control. And when the market is as topsy-turvy as this one, it's important to make sure that you are diversified. Be able to handle whatever the bears throw at you. Or even the bulls. And that is why we play MI, diversified. This is where you call me. You tell me your top five holdings. And I tell you if your portfolio is diversified enough in different sectors, maybe you need to mix it up a little. First up, we have a tweet from at Dan Vermont. And he says, hi, Dan from Vermont here. Bank of America, FireEye, Annaly, Square, and JetBlue. Huh. Okay. Bank of America, largest bank. Okay. FireEye, we had them on this week. Mandy, I thought he did a very good job. So that's a nice cybersecurity. Square is a payments company, which is actually different from Bank of America. Annaly is a company that is invests in different, uh, different bonds but very opaque, and JetBlue's aerospace. Um, I'm going to get rid of, rid of Annaly Union. This man needs health care. I'm going to give him Merck, okay? So we got, we got a drug company. We got a payments company. We got a, tech, uh, got a cybersecurity company, a bank, and an airline, and that is what you have to do. Annaly goes, okay? It just goes. All right, I need Charles in Maryland. Charles. Yes, sir. Good, good afternoon. How are you doing today? This is the best day ever. How about you? Okay, hanging in there, hanging in there. Good. So listen, my, my stocks are Comcast, Home Depot, ExxonMobil, Pfizer, and Intel. Here is someone who likes high-quality companies. ExxonMobil, large oil company, world, fantastic balance sheet, and the yield, the dividend is good. Pfizer, really good dividend, uh, excellent quarter. I got it handed to them. Drug company, nice. Home Depot stock was shelled today. Remember, today's the day. If you buy it, you've made money in the last 33 years. Thank you, Larry Williams. Intel, cream of the crop, semiconductor company, and Comcast. I work for Comcast. My travel trust owns it. And, man, the stock is hopping. So we got cable. We got semi. We got oil. We got retail. We got drug. This is... Perfection. Now we got to go to Mark in California. Mark! Booyah, Jim! Whoa, booyah, right back at ya! Thank you for your show and for all that you do for us home gamers. Hey, thanks, man. What's up? I have five stocks and I'd like to play Am I Diversified? Okay. My first one is Alliance Resource Partners, A R L P. Oh, Bank of America, B A C. Macy's, M, NVIDIA, NVDA, and Two Harbors, T-W-O. Jim, am I diversified? 
No, sometimes there's diversification. Sometimes there's just first aid. We have to do some first aid and some diversification. All right, Bank of America, largest bank. We like that. Alliance Resource Partners. I mean, you know, that is, I mean, I, I forgot that we still had that coal, uh, rest in peace coal situation. We are not going to endorse that company, even if we're just playing MI Diversified. Um, let me see, ALRP. Uh, but we will do this. We will do this. We will keep um, NVIDIA, which just reported, Semiconductor. Macy's wasn't nearly as bad. Uh, Pine River is another one I can't really figure out what they own. We went at Bank of America. We went at Macy's. We have NVIDIA. And we need, uh, again, we need healthcare. So we're picking Merck tonight. And we need a diversified industrial. We're going to pick United Technologies. Because what we don't want to do is have too many of these companies that we really don't know what they own. All right, let's go to Tom in Pennsylvania, please. Tom. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. I want to know what you think of my five core holdings. Okay. Honeywell. Apple, Boeing, Walmart, and Take-Two. I'm talking about a dream portfolio here. Honeywell, yes, Chapel Trust name, and we know Darius and DMT competing with the, just, just going right there, taking to the next level what Dave Cody built. Uh, Take-Two, Strauss Zelnick, a fantastic company. held up much better than all the other gaming companies. Boeing, I, Boeing is unparalleled manufacturer. I'll defend them to the end. Uh, Apple, well, what I can say, its best days can still be ahead of it. And Walmart, that was a good quarter. Stop reacting to the tape. Retail, tech, aerospace, diversified industrial, gaming. That's what I want to see. Stay with Kramer. Well, this is some quarter. Tonight we got, yes, truly disappointing numbers from NVIDIA with an inventory issue. I think it'll clear up, not anytime soon. We got truly disappointing forecasts from Applied Materials, a great American company that doesn't have the kind of semiconductor orders that I necessarily thought could be happening right now. Nordstrom did not deliver a good quarter. Uh, the last quarter was exceptional, so that's somewhat surprising. Williams-Sonoma did not deliver a quarter. People like the last quarter was amazing, incredible. I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. At Fidelity, online U.S. stock and ETF trades are commission-free. $0 commission for online retail Fidelity account U.S. equity and ETF trades. Sell order assessment fee and some account types and securities excluded. See Fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC.